0: Today's reading from the Word of God comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. Please follow along in your own Bibles, on the screen behind me, or listen as I read the Scriptures. Once again, that's the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join Kids Rock through the door on your right. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, good morning, friends. My name is Bryn. I am one of the pastors here at Anchor Bay Church, and I am so glad to be worshiping with you this morning. I am so pleased to see so many of you coming out on a cold Sunday. Um and after vacation. So welcome back to those who are traveling. I want to take a moment and just be quiet before the Lord and invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us where we are with whatever we brought into the room. The story that we're going to unpack this morning is so cool and so profound, and I hope that the Holy Spirit uh, brings some new insights into your life. And so let's invite God to do that uh, quietly on our own for a minute, and I will open us with a word of prayer after we've had a, a moment of silence. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we acknowledge that your way is not our way. But we want your way. And we ask that this morning you would deepen that desire in us to know you and to follow you through death and into life, even when that involves suffering and sacrifice. We pray that you would invite us, wherever we are, with the things that we struggle with, um, to know you better, to follow you, differently we thank you for this lenten season where we have the opportunity to engage with you in a different way and we ask that you would engage with us this morning we love you we offer this time to you as an act of our worship we pray these things in jesus name amen well before we get into it i feel like i owe you an update i just have to come clean Um, so last week if you were here i talked about how i really like tv shows and i'm not into zombie tv shows I'm into more, like, werewolf and vampire TV shows and, like, post-apocalyptic dramas. And I I talked about The Last of Us and how The Last of Us is, like, super popular, but I just have not gotten into it because I I tried a couple of episodes. I just didn't really like it. And last week, someone earnestly asked me, as their pastor, to try again. (laughs) And because I am a kind and loving pastor and I wanted to offer good pastoral care, I tried Last of Us again, and now I'm a little bit obsessed with it. So... That's the update. I am now inviting zombies into my TV repertoire. So if you have heard me preach, uh, you probably know that I like TV, I like movies, and I like music, and so I want to start with an exercise. So Betsy's going to play a couple of sound clips, and when she does, I want you to tell me what they represent for you. So Betsy, cue up the first. All right, what is it? Indiana Jones. Jones. Okay, let's go with the next one. Joss, nice. Donna, Donna, Donna. So you're picturing like a big shark. All right, we have one more. Very awesome. That takes people like two seconds. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> awesome. Okay, so that's not too hard, right? It's pretty powerful. You just listen to a couple of notes and, and images and, and colors and maybe whole stories come up in your mind that weren't there a second ago. You hear two notes, Donna, dunna, dunna And a picture of a giant fish comes into your mind. So about 150 years ago, there was a German composer named Richard Wagner, and he started to develop this technique that we talked about before called leitmotifs. Leitmotifs, he developed it for his opera Der Ring des Nibelungen*. Our German speakers can correct me later. *Nibelungen*. Has anyone seen this opera? It still has a cult following. you have got a couple of people who have seen it. Uh, so we've talked about these little measures of music before called leitmotifs. He could play just a couple of notes or just like a little melody, and instantly guests at his opera would associate those notes with a particular character or a particular mood that they were in or, or a storyline or an idea or a place. It was almost like a musical foreshadowing like this one that you might have heard before. Betsy? Betsy? The Flight of the Valkyries. So that's from this opera, and it was one of his leitmotifs. It's supposed to to conjure up images in your mind of particular characters that he's about to talk about. Wagner described his leitmotifs as what he called guides to feeling. They were how he told the story that was kind of the the, the story that wasn't being told on stage but was part of the plot anyway. They, They were the subtext. They were the background of the story. They set the stage for the foreground. So the story that Josh read for us this morning is full of kind of a biblical version of leitmotifs. And lots of churches have made the triumphal entry into a cute little story about a bunch of little kids who are waving palm branches as gentle Jesus, meek and mild, rides in on the Macy's Day Parade on Eeyore. But if we look deeper, there is a lot more going on in this story. This story is about something entirely different. There's a subtext. There's a whole other thing happening in the story than what we see on the surface. And the the writer of this gospel didn't feel a need to explain the subtext of the story to the people who first read it or who who witnessed the events. All he needed to do was write a, a word or a phrase and describe a scene, and the people who were listening, they wouldn't have missed a beat. Two notes, and suddenly there's a giant fish. So this morning, we are going to dig into the light motifs in this passage that John wrote into it. These were like kind of his little winks from off stage that something bigger was happening. And this sermon is going to feel a little bit more like a history lesson than our sermons typically do, but I think the history is so profound and so cool, and what we learned this morning can set the stage for our, the whole rest of the story that we will talk about during Lent. So if you brought your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 12, and we will get started. So we have been spending this entire year unpacking the Gospel of John. We spent the fall with Christ's invitation to come and see. Come and see. And then this winter we looked at Jesus' signs and wonders as he explained to his followers and to the crowds around who he was in word and in deed. And now during Lent, we will see the story slow way down as Jesus prepares for his death as a king and a criminal. A few days ago on Ash Wednesday, Kent Harrop, who's a member of our ABC community, opened our Lenten series by telling us about this super exclusive party that was thrown in Jesus's honor. And at this party, a woman named Mary came and anointed Jesus's feet with her tears. Jesus had just raised her brother Lazarus from the dead. We talked about this last week, and she was so thankful that she poured out everything, her perfume, her tears, her reputation, her life. All at Jesus' feet. And when we re-enter the story, it is right after this scene. So all of Jerusalem is in town for this great feast. Look at verse 12. It says, the next day, the the great crowd that had come for the festival. Okay, so we're going to stop there because it's our first leitmotif. Festival. The story starts at a festival. And this isn't just any festival. This was the biggest festival of the year. Passover. Passover. Passover was like the biggest deal of all of the big deals. It was like Mardi Gras and Chinese New Year and Christmas and Halloween in Salem all wrapped into one in Jerusalem, the sacred center of the Jewish world. The Jewish historian Josephus Josephus estimated that as many as three million people would cram into one square mile during Passover. Anyone who could go would go because this, this was the festival to remember the biggest event in their history, the exodus out of Egypt. If you remember, if you've been part of the the church for a while, you might remember the story about the Jewish people being brutally enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. And so God sends Moses to tell the Egyptian pharaoh, let my people go. But pharaoh wouldn't let them go. So God sends plagues, flies, boils, fruit flies, water turned to blood. But pharaoh still wouldn't let them go. So there's one final blow. Every firstborn of every household meets the angel of death, except except the households that painted lamb's blood over the doorposts of their houses. They were spared. And the whole thing is so painful and so heartbreaking that finally Pharaoh lets the people go. This was their most treasured story. It was their most cherished collective memory that God would actually consider their people worth saving and would let the people go, bring them out of the hands of their foreign oppressors, the Egyptians. And so they would tell the story, and they would retell the story. And just in case you might forget it, they would tell you again, especially during this week in Passover. Ours. Ours is the God who sees us. Ours is the God who hears us. Ours is the God who has compassion for us and will save us. Ours is the God who has saved us from the hands of the Egyptians. And here's the kicker. Ours is the God who can do it again. This festival happened every single spring. People would stream into Jerusalem for the festival. They would pick pick out a Passover lamb so they could remember that 10th plague with a celebration. And this day, the day that our story starts, is on Lamb Selection Day. Lamb Selection Day. Poor lamby. <laughs> So lamb selection day was when families, or sometimes whole communities, would, would pool their money together. They would hit up local farms. They would pick out the most unblemished lamb that they could find so that five days later they could sacrifice it and they could have a big lamb feast to celebrate that 10th plague. It was a great feast. It was an enormous celebration. But there was something else, something else that happened during Passover every year. And we know about this thing from historians because none of the gospel writers mentioned it in the gospels. They wouldn't have needed to. Everybody already knew about it. For as far back as as anyone could remember, this thing that happened was something that they had to endure year after year after year. And everyone knew it was coming. It was a parade. But this parade, it wasn't part of the Passover celebration. It wasn't even Jewish. It certainly wasn't welcome, but it happened every year anyway. Because you might remember that the Jewish people are currently celebrating Passover in another land that they do not own, under another ruler that they did not choose. You see, their land was choice land. It connected all three continents that surrounded it, so it was the perfect international hub for the, the surrounding nations, a, co- a connection point for trade routes. And at the time that this story was happening, it was also, the sea, it was also producing top-shelf grain, So it was nice land if you could get it, and anyone who could tried to get it. For most of Jewish history, the major global powers had fought tooth and nail over this land. And over time, the Jewish people had become the, the tug of war in a constant, or had become the rope in a tug of war between nations. And the latest winner was Rome. Rome didn't just rule Israel at the time. As far as anyone was concerned, Rome ruled the world at the time. The current Roman Emperor, Tiberius, had already conquered the globe from England to India, and so he was arguably the most powerful man in the world at the time, and his subjects actually thought that he was divine. But he couldn't be everywhere all at once, so he appointed governors to rule all of his territories on his behalf to to keep the peace, what they called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And keeping the peace in Israel during this kind of festival was especially important because when a couple hundred thousand or a couple million of your subjects got together every year to remind each other that their God had been victorious over foreign tyrants, And to celebrate the hope that God would once again be victorious over foreign tyrants, and you happen to be a foreign tyrant, you might get a little nervous. Because what if they stopped talking about Egypt and they started talking about you? Well, that could mean riots. If enough of them got fired up at the same time, that could mean mutiny. We can't have that. Historians would record stories about Jewish leaders standing up on the Mount of Olives claiming to be the Messiah, the chosen one who would lead God's people into victory, which would usually be followed by riots, which would usually be followed by the Romans coming in and killing everyone. And it happened often enough that the Romans brought in extra troops during that week. They were there to remind you, just in case you forgot, of who was boss. In in case you couldn't pick it up from the emperor's face on every coin or the Roman laws or the Roman taxes or the the Roman guards whispering into their walkie-talkies every time someone looked at them side-eyed, Rome would make sure that you knew. They would sear it into your memory with a Roman parade during your highest holy week of the year. So before the Roman Passover festival, or the Jewish Passover festival could begin, the Romans would make the Jewish community sit through their parade. This is Hunger Games-level domination. The parade went like this. They would ride in from the west, from a a town called Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the sea. They were coming from a a city that was named after the emperor. It was the governor's seat of power all over Judea. First, the Roman war eagle would be paraded in. It was made of the, the finest metal and gold and it would be put on top of a high pole so you couldn't miss it. And then the color guard would come in with the giant flags embroidered with pictures of their emperors and their divine titles and all the battles that they had won. Next, the soldiers would march in. They would be carrying metal shields and then horses, so many horses and armored chariots like, like tanks to blast through the city. Can you imagine? you just put yourself on the sidelines of this parade for a second. Cavalry, horses, chariots, dust swirling, armored feet marching in time to beating drums, sun shining all over the metal, clanking in rhythm, while their impoverished subjects stand by to watch. And last in line, riding on a huge horse, this big, impressive stallion, was the Roman governor of the day. You might have heard of him, Pontius Pilate. His name just drips with infamy. But in reality, Pilate wasn't really all that important. By this time, he had really put the minor in minor official. He wasn't really known for being a great leader. He was known for being a pretty terrible one. He was rumored to be anti-Semitic. He was known for his backroom handshake deals. He was, had a reputation for being simultaneously proud and insecure, as those who struggle with pride often really are. He'd been appointed governor of the area, Judea, by the emperor himself, which sounds impressive but it really was not a promotion. It was a demotion that Pilate was appointed after some big mistakes that he had made. From the Romans' perspective, Judea was in the middle of nowhere. It was famous for being rebellious and hard to manage and Pilate probably had his hands full settling religious disputes in small towns. This was not anyone's dream post. Pilate was a little deal. But he had so much armor on that he could really prop himself up to be a big deal, especially during the parade. So every year the Jewish people and Pilate, they would do this dance. The Jewish people would stream in to celebrate and the Romans would march in to dominate. But one year, one year on the other side of the city, coming in from the east, there was a second parade. Another leader riding into Jerusalem from the eastern part of the city. We hear about him from the prophet Isaiah. He says that there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance to attract anyone to him. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The Gospel of Luke even says that as he rode into the festival, he was crying. He probably wouldn't have been recognizable at first glance to very many people, although there would have been whispers or rumors about who he was. Some people said he was a, a great teacher. Other people said that he was a great prophet, some people were even saying that he had raised a man from the dead. Once, he was called the Lamb of God. And here he was, riding into Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day. He didn't ride in wearing metal armor. He wasn't dressed to impress. His mighty minions weren't impressive soldiers or cavalry. They were boondock fishermen, turncoat tax collectors. There were no war eagles or chariots or horses in this parade, just a bunch of cheering peasants and a man and a baby donkey that he'd found nearby. Donkeys weren't really exceptional in any way in that time. They were strong enough to carry sacks of grain and skins of wine and they were agile enough that they could make it through hill countries. So they were the preferred mode of transportation for the middle class. In that culture, they weren't symbols of wartime like horses were, they were symbols of peacetime. And they were also, for the Jewish people, a light motif. When these people heard and saw what was happening with the donkey, all the bells would have gone off. Ooh, something's happening. In verse 15, John quotes an old Israelite prophet, Zechariah. He says, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So this was what was called a remez. Ramez. it was a, a Hebrew literary, Jew, Jewish literary technique. It was when you would start, you would kind of quote the first part of a quote and you would know that everybody was so familiar with it that they would just know by heart the second part. So it'd be kind of like if I said, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, from the tree or a rose by any other name. Still smells as sweet yeah so there's that's kind of what what a rhema's was and John would have known that if he quoted the first part of this quote to his readers that they would have already known the second part he didn't even need to include it so he says the the first part it says do not be afraid daughter Zion see your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt." and then the rest of it goes I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. So a man on a donkey's colt is riding into Jerusalem from the east, while battle chariots and war horses ride in from the west. That was significant. That was a leitmotif, and it meant that their king had come. But this would be an entirely different kind of king than the emperor Tiberius. It would be an entirely different kind of king than, or ruler than Pilate was. This king's kingdom is actually about true peace, not about war. This king's reign is about service, not about domination. This king's parade is humble, not proud. His crown would be a crown of thorns. His throne would be a Roman cross. His coronation day would be his execution day, and he would enter his glory not wielding a sword, but pierced by one. Pilate's parade, it was an embodiment of the values of their day. And here's the thing. In a lot of ways, they're still the values of our day. Pilate demonstrated the kind of power that comes when you're the best, when you win, when you stand out, when you can beat the competition. But Jesus' parade, it was the embodiment of an entirely different kind of power. The kind that comes through self-sacrifice, through serving, through loving in a way that costs. Christ's kingdom was as far from the way of the empire as the east is from the west. Two parades, two ideologies, two theologies, two ways of being in the world. The empire in the west or the kingdom in the east. Which one would you choose? One bullies, the other loves. One fights, the other serves. One kills, the other dies. With every movement toward the city, Jesus pushes us toward a decision. Jesus pushes you toward a decision. Which side of the city are you gonna run to? Which parade is gonna draw you in? Which kind of power Do you find most attractive on the one side we have the kingdom of coercion the the kingdom of control of selfishness and self-protection and on the other side we have peace and humility and laying down our own wills our own preferences our own expectations for some even our own lives to serve this king i think most of us would like to believe that we would choose the way of jesus that we would do anything at any time for anyone, even when it hurts. But sometimes in our world, it's just so easy to get caught up in the other parade. For most of us, we would like to believe otherwise, but our our natural instinct is to armor up when something threatens us, even when that armor is heavy, even when it's suffocating. We make ourselves big. When we're feeling powerless, we assert our authority. We, We criticize our colleagues we put down our students, we shame our spouses, we, we demonize the other side. When we're feeling insecure, we triangulate to make sure that we know that we're in the right. We get sarcastic, we get critical, we get cynical. When we're feeling threatened, we pull rank, even just subtly. We steamroll, we raise our voices, we remind them who's boss. We get defensive, we get aggressive, or passive-aggressive. We use our weapons to get our our words as weapons to get our way. We shoot back a condescending comment. We put it in an email so we don't even have to look them in the eye when we do it. Maybe we're too outwardly nice to actually act on those feelings, but we have shower conversations with them, and we always win. I know those conversations. Or maybe, maybe we aren't the aggressive or passive aggressive type, but we armor up in a different way. Maybe we don't make ourselves bigger, maybe we make ourselves Smaller, we hold back, we stay hidden, we retreat into self-protection mode, we avoid the conversations or the relationships that might cause us pain. It's all armor, we just wear it a little bit differently. And this kind of thing starts early, right? Kids, kids in the playground, they, they're nice to their friends, but it's easy to bully or, or leave other kids out. That happens in the playground and it happens online now right in step with the empire. And as we get older, bullying takes on different forms. For many of us, picking someone else apart, judging them, it's a way that we can bully politely. Maybe we're just doing it even in our own minds. It's not coming out, but it's happening in there. Maybe they won't even ever know about it. But we're still thinking right in step with the empire. Maybe I believe that I I should love my enemies and serve those who hurt me. But in those moments when I'm really angry or I'm really afraid, sometimes it's easy to respond to them like the empire would. And the hard news is that so often, so often the times that the empire comes out in us, it comes out at the people that we're closest with, our family, our intimate friends, the people who should feel safest around us, but who sometimes just don't. And when we're living like that, we end up with a culture, or a household, or a workplace, or a school, where people no longer feel safe, where people no longer feel free to be vulnerable or to ask questions, where they don't feel free to fail, or they, they're not free to be who they truly are. We might end up crushing the opposition. We might end up on top. We might end up on the winning side of the argument, even in the shower conversations. But in the process, we've also trampled any hope of connection or grace or peace under the hooves of our war horses. We want to be drawn into the parade of Jesus, but I'd imagine that most of us spend at least a little bit of time with the parade in the West. We try to live both God's way and the way of the rest of the world. The the crowd surrounding Jesus sure did. They see him approaching on a donkey. They know the prophecies. They've, they've heard the motifs under the surface of this scene. They've heard of this man. They've heard rumors about him that maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the anointed one. Maybe he's the, the king. This is the one. This is the one who's going to crush our enemies, who's going to defeat our foreign oppressors. He's going to defeat the Romans once and for all, and then maybe we can have our own empire. And rather than letting Jesus come into the city on his terms, they take over his parade, they try to prop him up big. They try to turn him into a war hero. In verse 13, it says, they took palm branches and they went out to meet him. Palm branches are another light motif, because there was another old story that they all knew. 200 years before, another group called the Maccabees had led a revolt against the foreign oppressors of their day, and in their day, it had been the Greeks, and they had come out victorious. And the symbol of the Maccabees was the palm branch. And so since that day, palm branches had become this nationally charged, highly political symbol of revolt and Jewish victory. It's pretty fascinating. The Romans had required everyone to use money bearing the image of the Roman emperor. So the Jewish people had coins minted illegally that had palm branches on them. This is a modern day coin that still bears that emblem. So think about this, right? They're waving palm branches in Roman territory. It's a little like waving a red flag in front of a bull. This is a mockingjay. This is the declaration of war. And they start shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And that word Hosanna, it was another leitmotif. They're everywhere in this passage. It was a highly political statement. It was a revolutionary war cry, a rebel yell. We recited, a few minutes ago, we recited Psalm 118, and it comes from that. It's one of the songs that they would sing every year at Passover. Literally, Hosanna meant, save us, save us now, save us from our enemies. Blessed is the one true king, the one who will overthrow the wicked witch of the West. They wanted to turn the lamb of God into a lion, But Jesus wouldn't be that kind of king. Instead, he was betrayed, and arrested, and tried, and sentenced to death as a criminal. Now, none of the the gospel writers detail for their readers just what a crucifixion was like. They didn't need to, everybody already knew. Crucifixion was a punishment that was so painful and so degrading that Romans made it illegal to impose it on their own citizens. Crosses were assigned to only the worst kind of criminals, the basest kind of bottom dweller, the most shameful of the ashamed. And that is how Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, that's how Jesus died. He did not die grasping at power. He did not die playing the God card. He didn't use his privilege to his own advantage. Instead, he became obedient to death obedient to the kind of death that was illegal to impose on anyone who had any kind of value. Our king died as a criminal. And the moment that looked like the greatest failure in the world's eyes, it was the greatest honor in the Father's. Without his death and resurrection, friends, all we will know is the parade of Pilate. We can never choose Christ's way on our own. Pilate's parade is too in us. It's too much a part of the world for us to escape it on our own. But when we put that way to death with Jesus on the cross, when we choose the way of the criminal Jesus, he says his new life will reign in us. And by his spirit alive in us, we can learn a different way. So if we fast forward to the end of John's gospel, when he appears to his disciples after he's raised from the dead, he says, peace, And he says it twice, peace, peace. Peace is actually offered to you right now. And this was not the kind of peace like Pax Romana that's imposed on unwilling subjects who are forced into submission. It's not the kind of frightened quiet that comes when people are too afraid of us to be honest or to push back. It's not the kind of peace that happens when we act nice, when we're really hurting, when we avoid conflict, When we put on armor instead of having the hard conversation, this is a whole other kind of peace. It's the kind of peace that restores and heals and sets all things right. It's the kind of peace that sets you free from the worry that maybe you're not good enough. It's the the kind of peace where you don't have to wonder where you stand with people. It's the kind of peace where you don't have to be afraid of bad news. It's the kind of peace where justice truly is for all people, for all time, everywhere, where there's no more poverty and no more pain, no more need for self-protection or self-preservation, where you can remove the heavy armors and the grave clothes that you are still wearing so that you can be part of God removing the heavy armor and the grave clothes that our whole world is still wearing. Jesus isn't just here to give new power to our previous agendas. Jesus is here to give us a whole new way to be, along with the Holy Spirit power to fulfill it. His way, his way is unlike anything else that the world can offer us. And when we choose his way, when we allow his life to live in us, it restores us to be the people that we were intended to be all along. So this week, and this Lenten season... Let's spend some time getting to know his way. Let's let's start by paying attention to the parades that are living in our lives. Let's pay attention to to the armor that we wear. Let's pay attention to the situations that bring out the empires in us, the people or the triggers that send us running to the armory to protect ourselves. Just starting to identify some of those things can start to take away some of their power. And then let's ultimately hand that way over to Jesus, to be crucified in us, so that we can be free to live the life that we were intended to live, a life that is free of the need for power plays and coercion and the way of the empire altogether. Let's spend some time with the one who came to Jerusalem on a donkey, because friends, we become like the company we keep. And if we surround ourselves with pilots, then we will become like Pilate. But when we let God's spirit move in us, when we lean into God's way, showing us what needs to die in us and teaching us a new way to be, then we'll start to look like Christ. So if you haven't picked a Lenten spiritual practice yet, I'd encourage you to choose something intentional that puts you in Jesus's pathway. Something that you can do in this season to keep learning the way of Jesus in a different way, our criminal and king. If you are new to spiritual practices, to doing something on your own, or if you want to try some new ones, I'd encourage you to grab one of those Lenten micro-practice booklets that we have in the back of the sanctuary. Uh, they, They are there to offer you like a new little mini practice to try every day during the next six weeks. And each one is like a little surprise. I was talking with someone this week and she said, it's like a Lenten Advent calendar. Every day you get to unwrap a new practice that connects you with Jesus in a new way, like a little gift. If you're more seasoned, if you've been around the church for a while, or if you know some of the ways that you connect with God already, I would encourage you to to choose something in this season that pushes you a little bit. I was talking with someone on Ash Wednesday about a Lenten practice that she had, had chosen, and she told me that she picked a new spiritual practice that she knew would be difficult because she knew that she needed the push in her spiritual life. Friends, so much of the time, whether we realize it or not, we are drawn to Pilate's Parade. We're drawn to what feels big and important, or strong, or powerful, or safe. But to earn this status, we have to be willing to fall in line. We have to become who Pilate wants us to be. Jesus's parade is different. It calls us into a way that is not our way, but it is the only way that leads to life. Let's pray. God, your way means life. Your way means peace and love and freedom. And we admit, we confess that so much of the time we choose the other ways. We choose ways that lead to death. Death of relationships. Death of uh, love. We ask that you would put those ways to death in us so that we might live with you And so that we might demonstrate your life to the rest of the world that so desperately needs your life. We pray that your life would be alive in us. And that this week, as we go into our week, you would show us the ways of the empire that are still alive in us. And that you would draw us into yourself so that we might learn your way. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.